To celebrate Jobs' birthday a few weeks later, the team paid for a billboard on the road to Apple headquarters. It read, Happy 28th, Steve. The journey is the reward. The Pirates. One of the Mac team's programmers, Steve Capps, decided this new spirit warranted hoisting a Jolly Roger. He cut a patch of black cloth and had Care paint a skull and crossbones on it. The eye patch she put on the skull was an Apple logo. Late one Sunday night, Caps climbed to the roof of their newly built Bandley Three building and hoisted the flag on a scaffolding pole that the construction workers had left behind. It waved proudly for a few weeks until members of the Lisa team in a late-night foray stole the flag and sent their Mac rivals a ransom note. Caps led a raid to recover it and was about to wrestle it from a secretary who was guarding it for the Lisa team. Some of the grown-ups overseeing Apple worried that Jobs's buccaneer spirit was getting out of hand. Flying that flag was really stupid, said Arthur Rock. It was telling the rest of the company they were no good. But Jobs loved it, and he made sure it waved proudly all the way through to the completion of the Mac project. We were the renegades, and we wanted people to know it, he recalled. Veterans of the Mac team had learned that they could stand up to Jobs. If they knew what they were talking about, he would tolerate the pushback, even admire it. By 1983, those most familiar with his reality distortion field had discovered something further. They could, if necessary, just quietly disregard what he decreed. If they turned out to be right, he would appreciate their renegade attitude and willingness to ignore authority. After all, that's what he did. By far the most important example of this involved the choice of a disk drive for the Macintosh. Apple had a corporate division that built mass storage devices, and it had developed a disk drive system, codenamed Twiggy, that could read and write onto those thin, delicate, five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy disks that older readers, who also remember Twiggy the model, will recall. But by the time the Lisa was ready to ship in the spring of 1983, it was clear that the Twiggy was buggy. Because the Lisa also came with a hard disk drive, this was not a complete disaster. But the Mac had no hard disk, so it faced a crisis. The Mac team was beginning to panic, said Hertzfeld. We were using a single Twiggy drive, and we didn't have a hard disk to fall back on. The team discussed the problem at the January 1983 retreat, and Debbie Coleman gave Jobs data about the Twiggy failure rate. A few days later, he drove to Apple's factory in San Jose to see the Twiggy being made. More than half were rejected. Jobs erupted. With his face flushed, he began shouting and sputtering about firing everyone who worked there. Bob Belleville, the head of the Mac engineering team, gently guided him to the parking lot where they could take a walk and talk about alternatives. One possibility that Belleville had been exploring was to use a new three-and-a-half-inch disk drive that Sony had developed. The disk was cased in sturdier plastic and could fit into a shirt pocket. Another option was to have a clone of Sony's three-and-a-half-inch disk drive manufactured by a smaller Japanese supplier the Alps Electronics Company, 
which had been supplying disk drives for the Apple II. Alps had already licensed the technology from Sony, and if they could build their own version in time, it would be much cheaper. Jobs and Belleville, along with Apple veteran Rod Holt, the guy Jobs enlisted to design the first power supply for the Apple II, flew to Japan to figure out what to do. They took the bullet train from Tokyo to visit the Alps facility. The engineers there didn't even have a working prototype, just a crude model. Jobs thought it was great, but Belleville was appalled. There was no way he thought that Alps could have it ready for the Mac within a year. As they proceeded to visit other Japanese companies, Jobs was on his worst behavior. He wore jeans and sneakers to meetings with Japanese managers in dark suits. When they formally handed him little gifts, as was the custom, he often left them behind, and he never reciprocated with gifts of his own. He would sneer when rows of engineers lined up to greet him, bow, and politely offer their products for inspection. Jobs hated both the devices and the obsequiousness. What are you showing me this for, he snapped at one stop. This is a piece of crap. Anybody could build a better drive than this. Although most of his hosts were appalled, some seemed amused. They had heard tales of his obnoxious style and brash behavior, and now they were getting to see it in full display. The final stop was the Sony factory, located in a drab suburb of Tokyo. To Jobs, it looked messy and inelegant. A lot of the work was done by hand. He hated it. Back at the hotel, Belleville argued for going with the Sony disk drive. It was ready to use. Jobs disagreed. He decided that they would work with Alps to produce their own drive, and he ordered Belleville to cease all work with Sony. Belleville decided it was best to partially ignore Jobs and he asked a Sony executive to get its disk drive ready for use in the Macintosh. If and when it became clear that Alps could not deliver on time, Apple would switch to Sony. So Sony sent over the engineer who had developed the drive, Hidetoshi Komoto, a Purdue graduate who fortunately possessed a good sense of humor about his clandestine task. Whenever Jobs would come from his corporate office to visit the Mac team's engineers, which was almost every afternoon, they would hurriedly find somewhere for Komoto to hide. At one point, Jobs ran into him at a newsstand in Cupertino and recognized him from the meeting in Japan, but he didn't suspect anything. The closest call was when Jobs came bustling onto the Mac workspace unexpectedly one day, while Komoto was sitting in one of the cubicles. A Mac engineer grabbed him and pointed him to the janitorial closet. Quick, hide in this closet, please, now! Komoto looked confused, Hertzfeld recalled, but he jumped up and did as told. He had to stay in the closet for five minutes until Jobs left. The Mac engineers apologized. No problem, he replied. But American business practices, they are very strange, very strange. Belleville's prediction came true. In May 1983, the folks at Alps admitted it would take them at least 18 more months to get their clone of the Sony drive into production. At a retreat in Pajaro Dunes, 
Markala grilled Jobs on what he was going to do. Finally, Belleville interrupted and said that he might have an alternative to the Alps Drive ready soon. Jobs looked baffled for just a moment, and then it became clear to him why he'd glimpsed Sony's top disc designer in Cupertino. You son of a bitch, Jobs said. But it was not in anger. There was a big grin on his face. As soon as he realized what Belleville and the other engineers had done behind his back, said Hertzfeld, Steve swallowed his pride and thanked them for disobeying him and doing the right thing. It was, after all, what he would have done in their situation. Chapter 14 Enter Scully The Pepsi Challenge The Courtship Mike Markala had never wanted to be Apple's president. He liked designing his new houses, flying his private plane, and living high off his stock options. He did not relish adjudicating conflict or curating high-maintenance egos. He had stepped into the role reluctantly, after he felt compelled to ease out Mike Scott, and he promised his wife the gig would be temporary. By the end of 1982, after almost two years, she gave him an order. Find a replacement right away. Jobs knew that he was not ready to run the company himself, even though there was a part of him that wanted to try. Despite his arrogance, he could be self-aware. Markala agreed. He told Jobs that he was still a bit too rough-edged and immature to be Apple's president, so they launched a search for someone from the outside. The person they most wanted was Don Estridge, who had built IBM's personal computer division from scratch and launched a PC that, even though Jobs and his team disparaged it, was now outselling Apple's. Estridge had sheltered his division in Boca Raton, Florida, safely removed from the corporate mentality of Armonk, New York. Like Jobs, he was driven and inspiring, but unlike Jobs, he had the ability to allow others to think that his brilliant ideas were their own. Jobs flew to Boca Raton with the offer of a $1 million salary and a $1 million signing bonus, but Estridge turned him down. He was not the type who would jump ship to join the enemy. He also enjoyed being part of the establishment, a member of the Navy rather than a pirate. He was discomforted by Jobs's tales of ripping off the phone company. When asked where he worked, he loved to be able to answer, IBM. So Jobs and Markala enlisted Jerry Roche, a gregarious corporate headhunter, to find someone else. They decided not to focus on technology executives. What they needed was a consumer marketer who knew advertising and had the corporate polish that would play well on Wall Street. Roche set his sights on the hottest consumer marketing wizard of the moment, John Scully, president of the Pepsi-Cola division of PepsiCo, whose Pepsi Challenge campaign had been an advertising and publicity triumph. When Jobs gave a talk to Stanford business students, he heard good things about Scully, who had spoken to the class earlier, so he told Roche he would be happy to meet him. Scully's background was very different from Jobs's. His mother was an Upper East Side Manhattan matron who wore white gloves when she went out 
and his father was a proper Wall Street lawyer. Scully was sent off to St. Mark's School, then got his undergraduate degree from Brown and a business degree from Wharton. He had risen through the ranks at PepsiCo as an innovative marketer and advertiser with little passion for product development or information technology. Scully flew to Los Angeles to spend Christmas with his two teenage children from a previous marriage. He took them to visit a computer store where he was struck by how poorly the products were marketed. When his kids asked why he was so interested, he said he was planning to go up to Cupertino to meet Steve Jobs. They were totally blown away. They had grown up among movie stars, but to them, Jobs was a true celebrity. It made Scully take more seriously the prospect of being hired as his boss. When he arrived at Apple headquarters, Scully was startled by the unassuming offices and casual atmosphere. Most people were less formally dressed than PepsiCo's maintenance staff, he noted. Over lunch, Jobs picked quietly at his salad, but when Scully declared that most executives found computers more trouble than they were worth, Jobs clicked into evangelical mode. We want to change the way people use computers, he said. On the flight home, Scully outlined his thoughts. The result was an eight-page memo on marketing computers to consumers and business executives. It was a bit sophomoric in parts, filled with underlined phrases, diagrams, and boxes, but it revealed his newfound enthusiasm for figuring out ways to sell something more interesting than soda. Among his recommendations, invest in in-store merchandising that romances the consumer with Apple's potential to enrich their life. He was still reluctant to leave Pepsi, but Jobs intrigued him. I was taken by this young, impetuous genius and thought it would be fun to get to know him a little better, he recalled. So Scully agreed to meet again when Jobs next came to New York, which happened to be for the January 1983 Lisa introduction at the Carlisle Hotel. After the full day of press sessions, the Apple team was surprised to see an unscheduled visitor come into the suite. Jobs loosened his tie and introduced Scully as the president of Pepsi and a potential big corporate customer. As John Couch demonstrated the Lisa, Jobs chimed in with bursts of commentary, sprinkled with his favorite words, revolutionary and incredible, claiming it would change the nature of human interaction with computers. They then headed off to the Four Seasons restaurant, a shimmering haven of elegance and power. As Jobs ate a special vegan meal, Scully described Pepsi's marketing successes. The Pepsi Generation campaign, he said, sold not a product, but a lifestyle and an optimistic outlook. I think Apple's got a chance to create an Apple generation. Jobs enthusiastically agreed. The Pepsi Challenge campaign, in contrast, focused on the product. It combined ads, events, and public relations to stir up buzz. The ability to turn the introduction of a new product into a moment of national excitement was, Jobs noted, what he and Regis McKenna wanted to do at Apple. When they finished talking, it was close to midnight. This has been one of the most exciting evenings in my whole life, Jobs said, as Scully walked him back to the Carlisle. 
I can't tell you how much fun I've had. When he finally got home to Greenwich, Connecticut that night, Scully had trouble sleeping. Engaging with jobs was a lot more fun than negotiating with bottlers. It stimulated me, roused my long-held desire to be an architect of ideas, he later noted. The next morning, Roche called Scully. I don't know what you guys did last night, but let me tell you, Steve Jobs is ecstatic, he said. And so the courtship continued, with Scully playing hard but not impossible to get. Jobs flew east for a visit one Saturday in February and took a limo up to Greenwich. He found Scully's newly built mansion ostentatious, with its floor-to-ceiling windows, but he admired the three hundred-pound custom-made oak doors that were so carefully hung and balanced that they swung open with the touch of a finger. Steve was fascinated by that because he is, as I am, a perfectionist, Scully recalled. Thus began the somewhat unhealthy process of a star-struck Scully perceiving in Jobs qualities that he fancied in himself. Scully usually drove a Cadillac, but sensing his guest's taste, he borrowed his wife's Mercedes 450 SL convertible to take Jobs to see Pepsi's 144-acre corporate headquarters, which was as lavish as Apple's was austere. To Jobs, it epitomized the difference between the feisty new digital economy and the Fortune 500 corporate establishment. A winding drive led through manicured fields and a sculpture garden, including pieces by Rodin, Moore, Calder, and Giacometti, to a concrete and glass building designed by Edward Durrell Stone. Scully's huge office had a Persian rug, nine windows, a small private garden, a hideaway study, and its own bathroom. When Jobs saw the corporate fitness center, he was astonished that executives had an area with its own whirlpool separate from that of the regular employees. That's weird, he said. Scully hastened to agree. As a matter of fact, I was against it, and I go over and work out sometimes in the employees' area, he said. The next meeting was a few weeks later in Cupertino, when Scully stopped on his way back from a Pepsi bottlers convention in Hawaii. Mike Murray, the Macintosh marketing manager, took charge of preparing the team for the visit, but he was not clued in on the real agenda. PepsiCo could end up purchasing literally thousands of Macs over the next few years, he exulted in a memo to the Macintosh staff. During the past year, Mr. Scully and a certain Mr. Jobs have become friends. Mr. Scully is considered to be one of the best marketing heads in the big leagues. As such, let's give him a good time here. Jobs wanted Scully to share his excitement about the Macintosh. This product means more to me than anything I've done, he said. I want you to be the first person outside of Apple to see it. He dramatically pulled the prototype out of a vinyl bag and gave a demonstration. Scully found Jobs as memorable as his machine. He seemed more a showman than a businessman. Every move seemed calculated, as if it was rehearsed to create an occasion of the moment. Jobs had asked Hertzfeld and the gang to prepare a special screen display for Scully's amusement. He's really smart, Jobs said. You wouldn't believe how smart he is. 
The explanation that Scully might buy a lot of Macintoshes for Pepsi sounded a little bit fishy to me, Hertzfeld recalled, but he and Susan Kerr created a screen of Pepsi caps and cans that danced around with the Apple logo. Hertzfeld was so excited he began waving his arms around during the demo, but Scully seemed underwhelmed. He asked a few questions, but he didn't seem all that interested, Hertzfeld recalled. He never ended up warming to Scully. He was incredibly phony, a complete poseur, he later said. He pretended to be interested in technology, but he wasn't. He was a marketing guy, and that is what marketing guys are, paid poseurs. Matters came to a head when Jobs visited New York in March 1983 and was able to convert the courtship into a blind and blinding romance. I really think you're the guy, Jobs said as they walked through Central Park. I want you to come and work with me. I can learn so much from you. Jobs, who had cultivated father figures in the past, knew just how to play to Scully's ego and insecurities. It worked. I was smitten by him, Scully later admitted. Steve was one of the brightest people I had ever met. I shared with him a passion for ideas. Scully, who was interested in art history, steered them toward the Metropolitan Museum for a little test of whether Jobs was really willing to learn from others. I wanted to see how well he could take coaching in a subject where he had no background, he recalled. As they strolled through the Greek and Roman antiquities, Scully expounded on the difference between the archaic sculpture of the 6th century B.C. and the Periclean sculptures a century later. Jobs, who loved to pick up historical nuggets he never learned in college, seemed to soak it in. I gained a sense that I could be a teacher to a brilliant student, Scully recalled. Once again, he indulged the conceit that they were alike. I saw in him a mirror image of my younger self. I, too, was impatient, stubborn, arrogant, impetuous. My mind exploded with ideas, often to the exclusion of everything else. I, too, was intolerant of those who couldn't live up to my demands. As they continued their long walk, Scully confided that on vacations he went to the left bank in Paris to draw in his sketchbook. If he hadn't become a businessman, he would be an artist. Jobs replied that if he weren't working with computers, he could see himself as a poet in Paris. They continued down Broadway to Colony Records on 49th Street, where Jobs showed Scully the music he liked, including Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Ella Fitzgerald, and the Wyndham Hill jazz artists. Then they walked all the way back up to the San Remo on Central Park West and 74th, where Jobs was planning to buy a two-story tower penthouse apartment. The consummation occurred outside the penthouse on one of the terraces, with Scully sticking close to the wall because he was afraid of heights. First, they discussed money. I told him I needed one million dollars in salary, one million dollars for a sign-up bonus, said Scully. Jobs claimed that would be doable. Even if I have to pay for it out of my own pocket, he said. We'll have to solve those problems, because you're the best person I've ever met. I know you're perfect for Apple, and Apple deserves the best. 
He added that never before had he worked for someone he really respected, but he knew that Scully was the person who could teach him the most. Jobs gave him his unblinking stare. Scully uttered one last demurral, a token suggestion that maybe they should just be friends, and he could offer Jobs advice from the sidelines. Anytime you're in New York, I'd love to spend time with you. He later recounted the climactic moment. Steve's head dropped as he stared at his feet. After a weighty, uncomfortable pause, he issued a challenge that would haunt me for days. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, or do you want a chance to change the world? Scully felt as if he had been punched in the stomach. There was no response possible other than to acquiesce. He had an uncanny ability to always get what he wanted, to size up a person and know exactly what to say to reach a person, Scully recalled. I realized for the first time in four months that I couldn't say no. The winter sun was beginning to set. They left the apartment and walked back across the park to the Carlisle. The Honeymoon Scully arrived in California just in time for the May 1983 Apple Management Retreat at Pajaro Dunes. Even though he had left all but one of his dark suits back in Greenwich, he was still having trouble adjusting to the casual atmosphere. In the front of the meeting room, Jobs sat on the floor in the lotus position, absent-mindedly playing with the toes of his bare feet. Scully tried to impose an agenda. He wanted to discuss how to differentiate their products, the Apple II, Apple III, Lisa, and Mac, and whether it made sense to organize the company around product lines or markets or functions. But the discussion descended into a free-for-all of random ideas, complaints, and debates. At one point, Jobs attacked the Lisa team for producing an unsuccessful product. Well, someone shot back, you haven't delivered the Macintosh. Why don't you wait until you get a product out before you start being critical? Scully was astonished. At Pepsi, no one would have challenged the chairman like that. Yet here, everyone began pigpiling on Steve. It reminded him of an old joke he had heard from one of the Apple ad salesmen. What's the difference between Apple and the Boy Scouts? The Boy Scouts have adult supervision. In the midst of the bickering, a small earthquake began to rumble the room. Head for the beach, someone shouted. Everyone ran through the door to the water. Then someone else shouted that the previous earthquake had produced a tidal wave, so they all turned and ran the other way. The indecision, the contradictory advice, the specter of natural disaster only foreshadowed what was to come. Scully later wrote. One Saturday morning, Jobs invited Scully and his wife, Lizzie, over for breakfast. He was then living in a nice but unexceptional Tudor-style home in Los Gatos with his girlfriend, Barbara Jasinski, a smart and reserved beauty who worked for Regis McKenna. Lizzie had brought a pan and made vegetarian omelets. Jobs had edged away from his strict vegan diet for the time being. I'm sorry I don't have much furniture, Jobs apologized. I just haven't gotten around to it. It was one of his enduring quirks. 
his exacting standards of craftsmanship combined with a Spartan streak, made him reluctant to buy any furnishings that he wasn't passionate about. He had a Tiffany lamp, an antique dining table, and a laser disc video attached to a Sony Trinitron, but foam cushions on the floor rather than sofas and chairs. Scully smiled and mistakenly thought that it was similar to his own frantic and spartan life in a cluttered New York City apartment early in his own career. Jobs confided in Scully that he believed he would die young, and therefore he needed to accomplish things quickly so that he would make his mark on Silicon Valley history. We all have a short period of time on this earth, he told the Scullies as they sat around the table that morning. We probably only have the opportunity to do a few things really great and do them well. None of us has any idea how long we're going to be here, nor do I. But my feeling is I've got to accomplish a lot of these things while I'm young. Jobs and Scully would talk dozens of times a day in the early months of their relationship. Steve and I became soulmates, near constant companions, Scully said. We tended to speak in half sentences and phrases. Jobs flattered, Scully. When he dropped by to hash something out, he would say something like, You're the only one who will understand. They would tell each other repeatedly, indeed so often that it should have been worrying, how happy they were to be with each other and working in tandem. And at every opportunity, Scully would find similarities with Jobs and point them out. We could complete each other's sentences because we were on the same wavelength. Steve would rouse me from sleep at 2 a.m. with a phone call to chat about an idea that suddenly crossed his mind. Hi, it's me, he'd harmlessly say to the dazed listener, totally unaware of the time. I, curiously, had done the same in my Pepsi days. Steve would rip apart a presentation he had to give the next morning, throwing out slides and text. So had I, as I struggled to turn public speaking into an important management tool during my early days at Pepsi. As a young executive, I was always impatient to get things done and often felt I could do them better myself. So did Steve. Sometimes I felt as if I was watching Steve playing me in a movie. The similarities were uncanny, and they were behind the amazing symbiosis we developed. This was self-delusion, and it was a recipe for disaster. Jobs began to sense it early on. We had different ways of looking at the world, different views on people, different values, Jobs recalled. I began to realize this a few months after he arrived. He didn't learn things very quickly, and the people he wanted to promote were usually bozos. Yet Jobs knew that he could manipulate Scully by encouraging his belief that they were so alike, and the more he manipulated Scully, the more contemptuous of him he became. Canny observers in the Mac group, such as Joanna Hoffman, soon realized what was happening and knew that it would make the inevitable breakup more explosive. Steve made Scully feel like he was exceptional, she said. Scully had never felt that. Scully became infatuated because Steve projected on him a whole bunch of attributes that he didn't really have. When it became clear that Scully didn't match all of these projections, Steve's distortion of reality had created an explosive situation.
The ardor eventually began to cool on Scully's side as well. Part of his weakness in trying to manage a dysfunctional company was his desire to please other people, one of many traits that he did not share with Jobs. He was a polite person. This caused him to recoil at Jobs' rudeness to their fellow workers. We would go to the Mac building at eleven at night, he recalled, and they would bring him code to show. In some cases, he wouldn't even look at it. He would just take it and throw it back at them. I'd say, how can you turn it down? And he would say, I know they can do better. Scully tried to coach him. You've got to learn to hold things back, he told him at one point. Jobs would agree, but it was not in his nature to filter his feelings through a gauze. Scully began to believe that Jobs's mercurial personality and erratic treatment of people were rooted deep in his psychological makeup, perhaps the reflection of a mild bipolarity. There were big mood swings. Sometimes he would be ecstatic, and other times he was depressed. At times he would launch into brutal tirades without warning, and Scully would have to calm him down. Twenty minutes later I would get another call and be told to come over because Steve is losing it again, he said. Their first substantive disagreement was over how to price the Macintosh. It had been conceived as a $1,000 machine, but Jobs' design changes had pushed up the cost so that the plan was to sell it at $1,995. However, when Jobs and Scully began making plans for a huge launch and marketing push, Scully decided that they needed to charge $500 more. To him, the marketing costs were like any other production cost and needed to be factored into the price. Jobs resisted furiously. It will destroy everything we stand for, he said. I want to make this a revolution, not an effort to squeeze out profits. Scully said it was a simple choice. He could have the $1,995 price, or he could have the marketing budget for a big launch, but not both. You're not going to like this. Jobs told Hertzfeld and the other engineers, but Scully is insisting that we charge $2,495 for the Mac instead of $1,995. Indeed, the engineers were horrified. Hertzfeld pointed out that they were designing the Mac for people like themselves, and overpricing it would be a betrayal of what they stood for. So Jobs promised them, don't worry, I'm not going to let him get away with it. But in the end, Scully prevailed. Even twenty-five years later, Jobs seethed when recalling the decision. It's the main reason the Macintosh sales slowed and Microsoft got to dominate the market. The decision made him feel that he was losing control of his product and company, and that was as dangerous as making a tiger feel cornered. Chapter 15 the Launch A Dent in the Universe Real Artists' Ship The high point of the October 1983 Apple Sales Conference in Hawaii was a skit based on a TV show called The Dating Game. Jobs played MC, and his three contestants, whom he had convinced to fly to Hawaii, were Bill Gates, and two other software executives, Mitch Kapoor and Fred Gibbons. 
As the show's jingly theme song played, the three took their stools. Gates, looking like a high school sophomore, got wild applause from the 750 Apple salesman when he said, During 1984, Microsoft expects to get half of its revenues from software for the Macintosh. Jobs, clean-shaven and bouncy, gave a toothy smile and asked if he thought that the Macintosh's new operating system would become one of the industry's new standards. Gates answered, To create a new standard takes not just making something that's a little bit different, it takes something that's really new and captures people's imagination. And the Macintosh, of all the machines I've ever seen, is the only one that meets that standard. But even as Gates was speaking, Microsoft was edging away from being primarily a collaborator with Apple to being more of a competitor. It would continue to make application software, like Microsoft Word for Apple, but a rapidly increasing share of its revenue would come from the operating system it had written for the IBM personal computer. The year before, 279,000 Apple IIs were sold, compared to 240,000 IBM PCs and its clones. But the figures for 1983 were coming in starkly different. 420,000 Apple IIs versus 1.3 million IBMs and its clones. And both the Apple III and the Lisa were dead in the water. Just when the Apple sales force was arriving in Hawaii, this shift was hammered home on the cover of Business Week. Its headline, Personal Computers, and the winner is IBM. The story inside detailed the rise of the IBM PC. The battle for market supremacy is already over, the magazine declared. In a stunning blitz, IBM has taken more than 26% of the market in two years and is expected to account for half the world market by 1985. An additional 25% of the market will be turning out IBM-compatible machines. That put all the more pressure on the Macintosh, due out in January 1984, three months away, to save the day against IBM. At the sales conference, Jobs decided to play the showdown to the hilt. He took the stage and chronicled all the missteps made by IBM since 1958, and then in ominous tones described how it was now trying to take over the market for personal computers. Will Big Blue dominate the entire computer industry? The entire information age? Was George Orwell right about 1984? At that moment, a screen came down from the ceiling and showed a preview of an upcoming 60-second television ad for the Macintosh. In a few months, it was destined to make advertising history, but in the meantime, it served its purpose of rallying Apple's demoralized sales force. Jobs had always been able to draw energy by imagining himself as a rebel pitted against the forces of darkness. Now he was able to energize his troops with the same vision. There was one more hurdle. Hertzfeld and the other wizards had to finish writing the code for the Macintosh. It was due to start shipping on Monday, January 16th. One week before that, the engineers concluded they could not make that deadline. 
Jobs was at the Grand Hyatt in Manhattan, preparing for the press previews, so a Sunday morning conference call was scheduled. The software manager calmly explained the situation to Jobs, while Hertzfeld and the others huddled around the speakerphone holding their breaths. All they needed was an extra two weeks. The initial shipments to the dealers could have a version of the software labeled Demo, and these could be replaced as soon as the new code was finished at the end of the month. There was a pause. Jobs did not get angry. Instead, he spoke in cold, somber tones. He told them they were really great, so great, in fact, that he knew they could get this done. There's no way we're slipping, he declared. There was a collective gasp in the Bandley Building workspace. You guys have been working on this stuff for months now. Another couple weeks isn't going to make that much of a difference. You may as well get it over with. I'm going to ship the code a week from Monday with your names on it. Well, we've got to finish it, Steve Cap said. And so they did. Once again, Jobs's reality distortion field pushed them to do what they had thought impossible. On Friday, Randy Wigginton brought in a huge bag of chocolate-covered espresso beans for the final three all-nighters. When Jobs arrived at work at 8.30 a.m. that Monday, he found Hertzfeld sprawled nearly comatose on the couch. They talked for a few minutes about a remaining tiny glitch, and Jobs decreed that it wasn't a problem. Hertzfeld dragged himself to his blue Volkswagen Rabbit, license plate M-A-C-W-I-Z, and drove home to bed. A short while later, Apple's Fremont factory began to roll out boxes emblazoned with the colorful line drawings of the Macintosh. Real artists ship, Jobs had declared, and now the Macintosh team had. The 1984 Ad in the spring of 1983, when Jobs had begun to plan for the Macintosh launch, he asked for a commercial that was as revolutionary and astonishing as the product they had created. I want something that will stop people in their tracks, he said. I want a thunderclap. The task fell to the Shiat Day Advertising Agency, which had acquired the Apple account when it bought the advertising side of Regis McKenna's business. The person put in charge was a lanky beach bum with a bushy beard, wild hair, goofy grin, and twinkling eyes named Lee Clow, who was the creative director of the agency's office in the Venice Beach section of Los Angeles. Clow was savvy and fun, in a laid-back yet focused way, and he forged a bond with jobs that would last three decades. Clow and two of his team, the copywriter Steve Hayden and the art director Brent Thomas, had been toying with a tagline that played off the George Orwell novel, Why 1984 Won't Be Like 1984. Jobs loved it and asked them to develop it for the Macintosh launch, so they put together a storyboard for a 60-second ad that would look like a scene from a sci-fi movie. It featured a rebellious young woman outrunning the Orwellian thought police and throwing a sledgehammer into a screen showing a mind-controlling speech by Big Brother. 
the concept captured the zeitgeist of the personal computer revolution. Many young people, especially those in the counterculture, had viewed computers as instruments that could be used by Orwellian governments and giant corporations to sap individuality, but by the end of the 1970s, they were also being seen as potential tools for personal empowerment. The ad cast Macintosh as a warrior for the latter cause, a cool, rebellious, and heroic company that was the only thing standing in the way of the big evil corporation's plan for world domination and total mind control. Jobs liked that. Indeed, the concept for the ad had a special resonance for him. He fancied himself a rebel, and he liked to associate himself with the values of the ragtag band of hackers and pirates he recruited for the Macintosh group. Even though he had left the Apple Commune in Oregon to start the Apple Corporation, he still wanted to be viewed as a denizen of the counterculture rather than the corporate culture. But he also realized deep inside that he had increasingly abandoned the hacker spirit. Some might even accuse him of selling out. When Wozniak held true to the homebrew ethic by sharing his design for the Apple One for free, it was Jobs who insisted that they sell the boards instead. He was also the one who, despite Wozniak's reluctance, wanted to turn Apple into a corporation and not freely distribute stock options to the friends who had been in the garage with them. Now he was about to launch the Macintosh, a machine that violated many of the principles of the hacker's code. It was overpriced. It would have no slots, which meant that hobbyists could not plug in their own expansion cards or jack into the motherboard to add their own new functions, and it took special tools just to open the plastic case. It was a closed and controlled system, like something designed by Big Brother rather than by a hacker. So the 1984 ad was a way of reaffirming to himself and to the world his desired self-image. The heroine, with a drawing of a Macintosh emblazoned on her pure white tank top, was a renegade out to foil the establishment. By hiring Ridley Scott, fresh off the success of Blade Runner, as the director, Jobs could attach himself and Apple to the cyberpunk ethos of the time. With the ad, Apple could identify itself with the rebels and hackers who thought differently and Jobs could reclaim his right to identify with them as well. Scully was initially skeptical when he saw the storyboards, but Jobs insisted that they needed something revolutionary. He was able to get an unprecedented budget of $750,000 just to film the ad, which they planned to premiere during the Super Bowl. Ridley Scott made it in London, using dozens of real skinheads among the enthralled masses listening to Big Brother on the screen. A female discus thrower was chosen to play the heroine. Using a cold industrial setting dominated by metallic gray hues, Scott evoked the dystopian aura of Blade Runner. Just at the moment when Big Brother announces, We shall prevail, the heroine's hammer smashes the screen, and it vaporizes in a flash of light and smoke. When Jobs previewed the ad to the Apple sales force at the meeting in Hawaii, they were thrilled. 
so he screened it for the board at its December 1983 meeting. When the lights came back on in the boardroom, everyone was mute. Philip Schlein, the CEO of Macy's California, had his head on the table. Mike Markula stared silently. At first it seemed he was overwhelmed by the power of the ad. Then he spoke, Who wants to move to find a new agency? Scully recalled, Most of them thought it was the worst commercial they had ever seen. Scully himself got cold feet. He asked Shyatt Day to sell off the two commercial spots, one sixty seconds, the other thirty, that they had purchased. Jobs was beside himself. One evening, Wozniak, who had been floating in and out of Apple for the previous two years, wandered into the Macintosh building. Jobs grabbed him and said, Come over here and look at this. He pulled out a VCR and played the ad. I was astounded, Woz recalled. I thought it was the most incredible thing. When Jobs said the board had decided not to run it during the Super Bowl, Wozniak asked what the cost of the time slot was. Jobs told him $800,000. With his usual impulsive goodness, Wozniak immediately offered, Well, I'll pay half if you will. He ended up not needing to. The agency was able to sell off the 30-second time slot, but in an act of passive defiance, it didn't sell the longer one. We told them that we couldn't sell the 60-second slot, though in truth we didn't try, recalled Lee Clow. Scully, perhaps to avoid a showdown with either the board or Jobs, decided to let Bill Campbell, the head of marketing, figure out what to do. Campbell, a former football coach, decided to throw the long bomb. I think we ought to go for it, he told his team. Early in the third quarter of Super Bowl eighteen, the dominant Raiders scored a touchdown against the Redskins, and instead of an instant replay, television screens across the nation went black for an ominous two full seconds. Then an eerie black-and-white image of drones marching to spooky music began to fill the screen. More than 96 million people watched an ad that was unlike any they'd seen before. At its end, as the drones watched in horror the vaporizing of Big Brother, an announcer calmly intoned, On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. It was a sensation. That evening, all three networks and 50 local stations aired news stories about the ad, giving it a viral life unprecedented in the pre-YouTube era. It would eventually be selected by both TV Guide and Advertising Age as the greatest commercial of all time. Publicity Blast over the years, Steve Jobs would become the grand master of product launches. In the case of the Macintosh, the astonishing Ridley Scott ad was just one of the ingredients. Another part of the recipe was media coverage. Jobs found ways to ignite blasts of publicity that were so powerful the frenzy would feed on itself like a chain reaction. It was a phenomenon that he would be able to replicate whenever there was a big product launch, from the Macintosh in 1984 to the iPad in 2010. 
Like a conjurer, he could pull the trick off over and over again, even after journalists had seen it happen a dozen times and knew how it was done. Some of the moves he had learned from Regis McKenna, who was a pro at cultivating and stroking prideful reporters. But Jobs had his own intuitive sense of how to stoke the excitement, manipulate the competitive instincts of journalists, and trade exclusive access for lavish treatment. In December 1983, he took his elfin engineering wizards, Andy Hertzfeld and Burl Smith, to New York to visit Newsweek to pitch a story on The Kids Who Created the Mac. After giving a demo of the Macintosh, they were taken upstairs to meet Catherine Graham, the legendary proprietor who had an insatiable interest in whatever was new. Afterward, the magazine sent its technology columnist and a photographer to spend time in Palo Alto with Hertzfeld and Smith. The result was a flattering and smart four-page profile of the two of them, with pictures that made them look like cherubim of a new age. The article quoted Smith saying what he wanted to do next. I want to build the computer of the 90s, only I want to do it tomorrow. The article also described the mix of volatility and charisma displayed by his boss. Jobs sometimes defends his ideas with highly vocal displays of temper that aren't always bluster. Rumor has it that he has threatened to fire employees for insisting that his computers should have cursor keys, a feature that Jobs considers obsolete. But when he is on his best behavior, Jobs is a curious blend of charm and impatience, oscillating between shrewd reserve and his favorite expression of enthusiasm, insanely great. The technology writer Stephen Levy, who was then working for Rolling Stone, came to interview Jobs, who urged him to convince the magazine's publisher to put the Macintosh team on the cover of the magazine. The chances of Jan Wenner agreeing to displace Sting in favor of a bunch of computer nerds were approximately one in a Googleplex, Levy thought correctly. Jobs took Levy to a pizza joint and pressed the case. Rolling Stone was on the ropes, running crummy articles, looking desperately for new topics and new audiences. The Mac could be its salvation. Levy pushed back. Rolling Stone was actually good, he said, and he asked Jobs if he had read it recently. Jobs said that he had an article about MTV that was a piece of shit. Levy replied that he had written that article. Jobs, to his credit, didn't back away from the assessment. Instead, he turned philosophical as he talked about the Macintosh. We are constantly benefiting from advances that went before us and taking things that people before us developed, he said. It's a wonderful, ecstatic feeling to create something that puts it back in the pool of human experience and knowledge. Levy's story didn't make it to the cover, but in the future, every major product launch that Jobs was involved in, at Next, at Pixar, and years later when he returned to Apple, would end up on the cover of either Time, Newsweek, or Business Week. January 24, 1984 on the morning that he and his teammates completed the software for the Macintosh, Andy Hertzfeld had gone home exhausted 
and expected to stay in bed for at least a day. But that afternoon, after only six hours of sleep, he drove back to the office. He wanted to check in to see if there had been any problems, and most of his colleagues had done the same. They were lounging around, dazed but excited, when Jobs walked in. Hey, pick yourselves up off the floor. We're not done yet, he announced. We need a demo for the intro. His plan was to dramatically unveil the Macintosh in front of a large audience and have it show off some of its features to the inspirational theme from Chariots of Fire. It needs to be done by the weekend to be ready for the rehearsals, he added. They all groaned, Hertzfeld recalled, but as we talked, we realized that it would be fun to cook up something impressive. The launch event was scheduled for the Apple Annual Stockholders Meeting on January 24th, eight days away, at the Flint Auditorium of De Anza Community College. The television ad and the frenzy of press preview stories were the first two components in what would become the Steve Jobs playbook for making the introduction of a new product seem like an epical moment in world history. The third component was the public unveiling of the product itself amid fanfare and flourishes in front of an audience of adoring faithful mixed with journalists who were primed to be swept up in the excitement. Hertzfeld pulled off the remarkable feat of writing a music player in two days so that the computer could play the Chariots of Fire theme. But when Jobs heard it, he judged it lousy, so they decided to use a recording instead. At the same time, Jobs was thrilled with a speech generator that turned text into spoken words with a charming electronic accent, and he decided to make it part of the demo. I want the Macintosh to be the first computer to introduce itself, he insisted. At the rehearsal the night before the launch, nothing was working well. Jobs hated the way the animation scrolled across the Macintosh screen, and he kept ordering tweaks. He also was dissatisfied with the stage lighting, and he directed Scully to move from seat to seat to give his opinion as various adjustments were made. Scully had never thought much about variations of stage lighting and gave the type of tentative answers a patient might give an eye doctor when asked which lens made the letters clearer. The rehearsals and changes went on for five hours, well into the night. He was driving people insane, getting mad at the stagehands for every glitch in the presentation, Scully recalled. I thought there was no way we were going to get it done for the show the next morning. Most of all, Jobs fretted about his presentation. Scully fancied himself a good writer, so he suggested changes in Jobs' script. Jobs recalled being slightly annoyed, but their relationship was still in the phase when he was lathering on flattery and stroking Scully's ego. I think of you just like Waz and Markala, he told Scully. You're like one of the founders of the company. They founded the company but you and I are founding the future. Scully lapped it up. The next morning, the 2,600-seat auditorium was mobbed. Jobs arrived in a double-breasted blue blazer, a starched white shirt, and a pale green bow tie. This is the most important moment in my entire life, he told Scully as they waited backstage for the program to begin. I'm really nervous. 
You're probably the only person who knows how I feel about this. Scully grasped his hand, held it for a moment, and whispered, Good luck. As chairman of the company, Jobs went on stage first to start the shareholders' meeting. He did so with his own form of an invocation. I'd like to open the meeting, he said, with a twenty-year-old poem by Dylan. That's Bob Dylan. He broke into a little smile, then looked down to read from the second verse of The Times They Are A-Changin'. His voice was high-pitched as he raced through the ten lines, ending with, For the loser now will be later to win, for the times they are a-changin'. That song was the anthem that kept the multi-millionaire board chairman in touch with his counterculture self-image. He had a bootleg copy of his favorite version, which was from the live concert Dylan performed with Joan Baez on Halloween 1964 at Lincoln Center's Philharmonic Hall. Scully came on stage to report on the company's earnings, and the audience started to become restless as he droned on. Finally, he ended with a personal note. The most important thing that has happened to me in the last nine months at Apple has been a chance to develop a friendship with Steve Jobs, he said. For me, the rapport we have developed means an awful lot. The lights dimmed as Jobs reappeared on stage and launched into a dramatic version of the battle cry he had delivered at the Hawaii sales conference. It is 1958, he began. IBM passes up a chance to buy a young fledgling company that has invented a new technology called xerography. Two years later, Xerox was born, and IBM has been kicking themselves ever since. The crowd laughed. Hertzfeld had heard versions of the speech both in Hawaii and elsewhere, but he was struck by how this time it was pulsing with more passion. After recounting other IBM missteps, Jobs picked up the pace and the emotion as he built toward the present. It is now 1984. It appears that IBM wants it all. Apple is perceived to be the only hope to offer IBM a run for its money. Dealers, after initially welcoming IBM with open arms, now fear an IBM-dominated and controlled future and are turning back to Apple as the only force who can ensure their future freedom. IBM wants it all, and is aiming its guns at its last obstacle to industry control, Apple. Will Big Blue dominate the entire computer industry? The entire information age? Was George Orwell right? As he built to the climax. The audience went from murmuring 